Section 24 of Vagabond Adventures. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vagabond Adventures by Ralph Keeler. Book 3. The Tour of Europe for $181 in Currency. Chapter 4. A Fight with Famine. In the meantime, the condition of my finances was becoming hourly more desperate. I had written to innumerable American newspapers offering to produce a letter a day for five dollars a week, and making all sorts of struggling tenders of brainwork, from which, as a general rule, I heard nothing at all. At last Christmas came and found me back at Heidelberg, utterly penniless, over five thousand miles from home in a country where for a stranger to obtain work was simply hopeless, since the boys in that densely populated land have to pay for the privilege of learning to carry bundles, a pursuit which is there for three years a necessary introduction to becoming a salesman of the smallest wares. To obtain a situation as beggar was still more hopeless, the competition of native dwarves and cripples being altogether too powerful for an able-bodied alien. So here was the end of my one hundred and eighty-one dollars in currency. I had made what is called the tour of Europe, and I now had the prospect of immediate starvation for my pains. And yet that Christmas day was, by all odds, the happiest day of my life. For just at fifteen minutes past eleven o'clock a.m., the postman knocked at the door and handed me very unexpectedly a letter containing about twenty-five dollars in our money. It came from an American paper, to which I had written at least twenty letters for publication, and twenty-five letters asking for money. So it was undoubtedly the twenty-five dunning letters that were paid for, and I shall never be so rich or happy again. So much has been written about the holidays in Germany that I cannot be expected to say anything new on the subject. It may, however, have been forgotten by some that the Weihnachten of the Fatherland commence on what we call Christmas Eve. This is the great night for children. It is their feast. It is the time they have been looking forward to with such wild, glad, gorgeous anticipation. It is the night of the Christmas tree, and in all Germany there is no child so poor as not to get something from its green boughs. Besides this night, Christmas has two whole days, to which, respectively, there seems to be a logical apportionment of two very important kinds of enjoyment. The first day is assigned to boundless eating, and the second, mildly speaking, to getting drunk. And it is due to the zeal of the southern Germans, at least, to say that they observe this order of ceremonies with scrupulous exactness. Now it may be sentimental, or something worse, but I confess I like to dwell upon the time when twenty-five dollars made me perfectly happy. Memory, you may have observed, has a way of painting frescoes with the clouds of distant skies that are even prettier than the lay figures and life-forms which served for the real models. It was, for instance, a quiet little scene of domestic joy that Christmas of my student life in Germany, yet somehow it has grouped itself in my remembrance like the masterpiece of Cornelius, the largest fresco of them all. Frau Hirtel was the domestic little body of whom I rented my airy apartment. Fraulein Anna was her rosy daughter, and this little sunbeam in the house was the only child of the family that I had ever seen. 
though many and many a time the name of Carl, the only son and brother, was upon their lips. Carl was a Handwerksbursche, one of those houseless tradesmen before dwelt upon, and on this Christmas Carl was expected home from his long, long wanderings. The illuminated tree on the night before had been laden with many a gift of affectionate remembrance for the absent Carl. As we sat down to the Christmas dinner there was a vacant place at the table, and in the hearts of the disappointed mother and sister. They could not touch a morsel. "'Are you sure he will come, Mama? asked the little Anna, after a long silence. "'Yes, my child, unless something has happened, for the way is long from Frankfurt, and the poor boy's feet must be sore with his long, long journey. What, Mama, if he shouldn't come?' Frau Hirtel's face became very pale, whether at the little Anna's question or at the sudden ringing of the shop-bell as the door swung open and shut. The next instant Karl was in the middle of the room, his pack and staff fell at his feet, and Frau Hirtel and the Fraulein Anna sprang into his arms. It was not the merry dinner that succeeded, or the Glühwein that made the evening glad, but this one picture which dwells most in my memory, the joy that shone on the careworn and dust-stained face of the returned wanderer, reflected in those of his mother and sister as they stood in that long embrace, has no parallel that I know of in the history of the return of exiled kings. With my twenty-five dollars I lived cheaper than ever, and for some months longer continued my studies at the university. But one morning I received a letter from the same generous American newspaper enclosing a draft for fifty dollars, together with a very earnest request that the editor should hear no more from me on any account whatever. This good fortune was too much for my mental equilibrium. Heidelberg was too small for me. I started the next day for a trip down the Rhine, deck passage. At Rotterdam I betook myself again to the third-class cars, and occasionally to the bundle and staff. Thus I went through Holland and Belgium, walking leisurely one day over the historic dead of Waterloo. Arriving finally at Paris, I resolved there to take up my residence. By means of a cheap lodging in the old Latin quarter, and of a cheaper restaurant on the boulevard Sevastopol, I managed to subsist for several months. It was here in Paris that I first met my good friend George Alfred Townsend, the well-known war correspondent. To him I was afterward indebted for a short romantic sketch of my life, in which he says, I believe, among other complimentary things, that the faculty of Heidelberg gave me my tuition for nothing, but that I would not stay with them and study, because I thought it too dear. But seriously I owe Mr. Townsend a real debt of gratitude, for it was he who suggested that I should write an account of certain of my experiences for one of the London magazines. After the questionable success of my multifarious attempts with American newspapers, I trembled at the temerity of the idea. Yet my money was becoming daily, and by no means beautifully, less. Neither Mr. Townsend nor anybody else but myself was aware that, at the time of his suggestion, my cash capital consisted of one gold napoleon, a silver five-franc piece, and some three or four sous, and even this sum had dwindled considerably before I could muster courage to make the attempt. At last, in a fit of desperation, 
I sat down one morning with the equivalent of about two dollars in my pocket, and commenced my article. In three days more it was on its way to London with an enclosure of British stamps, enough to pay for the letter which should tell me whether it was accepted or rejected. I shall not dwell longer than I can help upon the painful suspense of the succeeding five or six days, though I do not remember now my grounds for expecting an answer in so short a period. Up to that time I will venture to say there was not a happier person in the gay capital of France than I had been, for it is one of the peculiar charms of Paris that it affords abundant amusement for him who spends forty francs a month, as I did, or forty thousand a month, as some do. I cannot explain now, any more than you can believe in, my happiness then. I know only that the beautiful city was delightful and that I was delighted. The palaces, the galleries, the gardens, the parks, the music, and the wonderful diorama of the evening boulevards were free, as free to me, the vagabond stranger, as they were to the greatest prince and I had the additional, though not necessarily comfortable, assurance that I always carried away from them a better appetite for the next meal than did even his inscrutable majesty the emperor himself. But now that I had the growing cares of authorship on my mind, it dwelt more and more upon me the waning discs of my frank pieces, as they swelled for a time elusively into sous and then tapered into centimes, and disappeared from my gaze forever. At this period I found myself occasionally strolling down to the Seine, and looking over from Pont Neuf at the flood below, swollen with the late rains, and listening to the strange sound it made in the wake of the old stone arches as it rushed on toward the morgue, the famous dead house, where hundreds of suicides are displayed every year. Have you ever heard the last bubbling groan of a drowning man? If you have, you will understand the feeling with which, after listening long and steadily to the low rumble of the eddying water, I have received the impression more than once on that old bridge that I heard the same fatal gurgling sound in the river beneath. And you will understand the feeling also, I think, with which, at such times, I cast a hasty glance at the morgue, not far distant and hurried on to the more cheerful neighborhood of the Garden of the Tuileries. I would not have you believe that the idea of suicide ever crossed my mind. I merely went and looked into the Seine on that queer, unexplained principle which impels miserable people, the world over, to haunt wharves and bridges, and to gaze listlessly into water. I have sometimes thought, when I saw servant-girls and others out of employ looking, for instance, from the bridge of boats at Mannheim into the Rhine, as into the window of an intelligence office, I have sometimes thought, I say, that if dogs do go mad from gazing into water, as I think was once believed, they are very miserable dogs, and very much disgusted with the world before they do it. One day, the fourth of my suspense, if I remember, when I was more despondent and hungry than usual, I went and looked in through the grating of the morgue itself. If I had ever had the least thought of throwing myself into the Seine, this horrible sight would have cured me as thoroughly of it as it did of my appetite for the rest of that day. I feel some diffidence about mentioning a plan, 
happily abandoned, as you shall see, before put into further execution, which suggested itself to my mind during that hungry week, namely, to visit the morgue once a day for purposes of economy. But luckily I discovered about this time that the smoking of cigarettes made of cheap French tobacco would perform the same service of taking away the appetite, and I adopted the latter more agreeable means to that end. The fifth and sixth days after sending my article I did scarcely anything but wait about the office for my letter. Finally a note arrived from Paternoster Row, with just one line of the worst penmanship in it that has ever yet met my eyes, and the painful suspense was only intensified. The writer evidently said something about my article, but what I despaired of making out. I took the note to my friends, and they were divided about it. Some said that the article was rejected, and some that it was accepted. The majority, however, favored the latter opinion, to which at last myself was brought, and I was happy. Not long afterward I received a draft from the publishers for a sum which seemed to me at that time almost fabulous for the amount of work done. After a hearty meal, and as soon as I had time to think, I considered my fortune made. I was now arrived at the appalling dignity of magazinist, contributor to the widest circulated periodical in the language. I packed my trunk immediately and started for Italy. End of chapter 4 A Fight with Famine